this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are my co-hosts, Dixie Cochran. Hello there. And Matthew Dawkins. Wait a minute, you're hosting? Yes. Okay, well I'm glad we got that sorted. (laughs) (laughs) We just had this conversation. Also, if you thought you were hosting, why didn't you start talking when I hit record? (laughs) I was doing the the long theatrical intake of breath, I was about to go, (gasps) Welcome to... (laughs) Please, please don't do that. That's a terrible sound. Yes, you shouldn't do that during a pandemic, uh, I have to <laughs> say. The, the I mean, long... I figure you can breathe on your own microphone. Yeah, there isn't actually someone's face right in front of me. I'm not. That's not how I record. But do you share your microphone with others? That's the question. No. You know, I do not. Uh, I remember once I was in a school band, very briefly, and our lead singer, who had a little bit of an overbite... Uh, electrocuted himself on the microphone by bashing it with his, I assume, wet teeth. Oh my uh, god. Yeah, what? It just, there was That's just a, a bad microphone, too. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it was a school microphone. So he, yeah, there was just this sudden, and he went, poof, and just slammed back down to the stage. He was fine. He was fine. I'm sure. No lasting damage. I haven't heard from him in, I guess, 20 years, so he may be dead. <laughs> If you're out there, overnight lead singer, <laughs> and you listen to the Onyx podcast, please get in touch with Matthew Dawkins. The band, and We're I didn't come you. up with its name, and I apologize for it, but I will tell you what it was anyway, was a Toxic Shock Syndrome. Oh my god! Yeah. Don't call yeah. a band that. I didn't name it, and I only performed with them once, because I'll be honest, I'm not much of a musician. I can carry a tune, and that was my purpose for being there. But they had aspirations of being a very sort of heavy metal uh, thing that was very very much of the mode of the late 90s, early 2000s. What did you do in the band? uh, I just sang in the background. A backing singer is sometimes what they're called. Oh, yeah. I I like how you had to clarify that they wanted to be a metal band because the other alternative is like, and now the smooth jazz stylings of toxic <laughs> shock syndrome. <laughs> I kind of figured they were either metal or punk. You right, know? those are really the only two options you have. <laughs> no, no, they were a bubblegum pop band. Yes. <laughs> it was baby metal, way too early. They had uh, aspirations of being the next Banana Fish, <laughs> or, which was a, another band in our local area. Or the uh, you now I need to remember the the full name of this. One of you will be able to correct me because you, I think you both have a greater depth of musical knowledge than I do. Uh, it's something like you will know I have been here by the trail of the dead or something like that. Yeah, you'll probably you will get... know us by the trail. Yeah, what's it? What's that band called? Yeah, it's something I'm like it up. yeah. There so you go. Ring a faint bell. It's and and you will know us by the trail of dead. There you go. Yeah, a nice, easy band name to wrap your head around. They only go by Trail of Dead on their like other stuff, um, mm. but I I only know them because of when I worked at Hot Topic. Like I am very familiar with every band name that had a Hot Topic T shirt uh, <laughs> in the early aughts because I was working there. Um, but past that, I I didn't listen to a lot of those bands. So like, I'm vaguely aware of a lot of like American hardcore bands that yeah. I do not listen to because I I don't like screamy music. Right. Um, I have a sorry to the listeners who I'm currently alienating who are metalheads. Um, I have an aversion to not being able to understand the lyrics of a song. Yes. Man, that must suck. So I can't listen to metal. I I, I can only listen to songs where I can understand what they're saying on some level. 
And that even includes songs in, in, in other languages where they're at least enunciating. <laughs> so I can hear the individual sounds. But I mean, like, I've had so many friends in metal bands and I've been to so many like local metal shows where after like three songs, I'm like, I don't know a single word they said. I mean, I was joking earlier, but that's actually part of the reason why for a long time I listened to heavy metal and punk is because I knew I was not the only person who didn't understand what was being said. So I felt a little more seen, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. I, I completely understand that. <laughs> Now, I had a problem uh, with sound. Uh, just last Friday, I went to see the Suicide Squad movie. Oh. And uh, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Now, I've been to the cinema a few times since it's reopened uh, in the pandemic. and Has it felt weird? It has felt weird, but people are socially distancing and, oh, and remaining respectful. Uh, you know, that all seems to be going fine. And now I I went a couple of times to some of the small screens with my son to see some uh, children's movies, and they were fine. And so I went to see the Suicide Squad by myself because I've got what's called a limitless card. I can basically I it, it's a free ticket to any film I want to see. So if I right. want to see eight films in a month, I can do so by myself for free, ostensibly. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought. I'm interested in the Suicide Squad. It's been so long since I've been to the cinema to watch something I enjoy, so I'll go and watch it. Anyway, went see it in screen one at our local movie theatre, or theatre, as I understand some people in Texas say. And <laughs> uh, screen one in our local cinema is a massive auditorium. Uh, it used to be a 19th century theatre, and so mm. there's still chandeliers hanging from the ceilings. Nice. So it's it's quite a uh, nice feeling when you go there. However, this is the first time, and I don't know whether it was the quality of the sound of the movie, whether the projectionist or whoever was responsible for this had screwed it up, whether it was the size of the auditorium, or whether it's simply my hearing. But I was sat there during the ads and the trailers, and so much of it, the music... And the dialogue was blending in to each other. There was a lot of a lot of noise that I was picking up, mm. and I was thinking, I can't really pass this. I, I'm not sure what's going on. I can just about make out what's going on, but a lot of it was just throughout. And I was thinking, this had better improve by the time the movie starts. And so I then the movie started. And undoubtedly, I followed what was going on. It was the Suicide Squad. It wasn't bloody something by Samuel Beckett. But <laughs> I, I, I just occasionally had these moments where if there was too much going on at the same time, everything audibly just seemed to blur together. And I felt like I was leaning forward in my seat with, a, with that Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception expression mm -hmm. on my face that hmm? <laughs> what's going on I, I, yeah. did I miss something vital so mm -hmm. uh, the long long story short too late uh, maybe I should get my hearing checked or maybe the local cinema needs to employ a better audio technician I don't know I mean it, it, it could be both but um, I suspect based on my own auditory problems that it's probably a stereo mix got shoved into a mono channel somehow um, and so it gets flattened out and blurred the audio together as sometimes happens mm -hmm. um, but that's what until I got my hearing aids that's what movies sounded like to me that's all movies sounded like that to me um, ah. it was a, here's the exploding bit that's too painful and then here's where everyone mumbles that's basically all movies honestly though like that's been a trend in cinema in the past 
it is decade or so where it like is. i hate it i hate it too because like even like i watch movies at home more than i watch them in theater mm-hmm. uh, partially because my own processing issues with adhd mean that if somebody is like whispering i get angry i just like stare at them and i'm like stop it stop it stop it stop it and it's kind yeah. of my attention that most people don't have a like rage reaction to that Right. <laughs> but I do. I very much have like a rage reaction to little sounds that are interrupting the movie. So I prefer to watch movies at home if I can. Mm-hmm. And like there's so many movies where I'll turn my TV up to like, you know, 22 volume while they're talking. And it's like, okay, this is good. I can hear this. And then all of a sudden, a, something happens actually, or music comes on. And I'm like, my neighbors are going to kill me. Like, turn it down, turn it down. Um, yeah. And that's very frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. No, I choose to watch movies and TV shows with subtitles on at home if I'm watching them by myself. Yeah. I don't feel... It isn't that I can't necessarily hear everything, but I feel more comfortable knowing that I can watch it at a lower volume and still yeah. pick everything up. I do uh, subtitles for most things, but I don't like doing them for horror because too often I find that the subtitle telegraphs a thing that's about to happen. <laughs> yes. And yeah. so if I'm watching horror and I want to be like surprised by the horror thing, I, I turn off subtitles because otherwise it'll like, the, like subtitle will preempt the jump scare. Or, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Or um, a, mis- a, a mysterious voice comes from off screen um, and you're not supposed to know who it is right away, but then the subtitles will helpfully tell you who's saying that line. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, so- like Dawn from off screen. And you're like, no, no, I don't want that. <laughs> So I was watching Mr. Robot recently, and I think I've just about given up on it. Not a bad series, I just don't think it's for me. But I Mm -hmm. was watching an episode where uh, Elliot, the protagonist, was largely in his own head. And he does a lot of internal monologue throughout Mr. Robot. And I was watching this with subtitles on. And this is the first time I've ever noticed this, that at one point... He stops doing his internal monologue. He leaves the room. There is only music playing. There is no one else speaking. But the subtitle was continued. And they they carried on saying things that he wasn't saying. But they were still what? connected, yeah, to the preceding scene. It was almost like he, he was um, may have been reciting a couple of verses from a poem or something like that. And then he leaves the room. And the poem goes on, despite the fact he's not saying it. Now, if I was being particularly pedantic or savvy about it, I probably would have thought, okay, well, what happens if I turn the subtitles off? Is uh, is this something that was subtitled anyway? I don't see why it would have been, because he was saying it completely clearly. Or is there a... I know this happened with Netflix recently. They had a TV... a movie... Uh, what's it called? Lover's Playbook or something? It's a Rachel McAdams, Ryan Gosling movie, I think, from the mid-2000s, where it's got a very sad ending. And for whatever reason, the studio, when they sent the digital copy of this movie to Netflix, sent them a version with an ending that had never been shown in the theatres. It's not the same sad ending. Is it, was... is it The Notebook? That's it, The Notebook, that's it. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, they they basically don't get old and spoilers for a 15 year old movie. They don't get old and what happens to old people in the version that was on Netflix. And so people were complaining to Netflix and saying, why doesn't this have the same ending that I remember? 
And they said, we don't know. Uh, we were just sent this copy. And since then, they've replaced it. Now, I wonder whether there uh, is a longer version of some of these episodes of Mr. Robot where the scenes go on a little longer sometimes, and it just mm -hmm. so happens that the subtitles were created for those episodes, maybe the televised version, as opposed to the condensed Amazon Prime version. So I, I actually have an answer for that. Okay. I, I, can I put forth my theory first? And then sure, you can go tell ahead. us the actual thing? Right. I, I assumed it was because they were working off a script that then got changed. But I honestly don't know. So go ahead. Um, no, uh, because... Um, uh, Closed captioning is done by a specific group of agencies. Um, if you watch television, there's you say a closed caption provided by blah, 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 blah. Um, so if a show is broadcast, then they will send that episode to, as produced, to a closed captioning fund. And they usually have like a week or so to, to do closed captioning. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's not very long at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but then once the closed captioning is in, they don't ever do it again. So... A lot of times after a show has been aired, they will occasionally make small edits before they make the DVD release, and Netflix usually gets the DVD versions of episodes. Okay, and I But they won't always Prime update the closed captioning. Yeah. Amazon probably does the same thing. Right. Um, so, for example, um, I have watched shows where they will closed caption say, you know, like a lot of times you'll see like a certain song is playing in the closed captioning. But it's a different song playing because you couldn't get the rights for the streaming version of it. So mm -hmm. They changed the music, but it didn't change the subtitles accordingly. I hate that. I, I hate it when it's uh, when you remember a certain piece of music being played uh, from when you first watched it, and now you've got some generic biddle music of well, I don't know what this is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, no, I I hate that when 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 music rights lapse, and you're like, no, I remember this being X, <laughs> and it's right. just not. Um, because I watched um the first season of Peaky Blinders when I was living in Ireland, and it's like oh, I love the music on this, and then I watched it again on Netflix. It's like, how many versions of Red Right Hand does this show have to have? <laughs> Because I think they had the rights for that song and nothing else. They just covered like 12 times to replace yeah. all the music they had to replace. <laughs> but anyway, we are not here yeah. to talk about subtitling. That is not why we're here today. Well, I'm going to talk about Dawson's Creek because apparently okay. on Netflix now, which I, if, 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 if I understand this correctly, I didn't watch Dawson's Creek, but I feel like everybody knows the theme song. It's that like, I don't want to wait song that was really oh, big yeah. at the time. Do, yeah. Do, do, for our lives do, to be do, over. Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. So apparently they had to change it for Netflix because of that thing, the whole like rights lapse thing. Mm -hmm. And people are real mad. Um, <laughs> it's one thing to not lose the rights for like an, an essential song in the middle of an episode, but the theme song seems like a big misstep. <sighs> yeah. Also, uh, in, the, in the episode of The X-Files where they go to Scully's father's funeral, they originally played Beyond the Sea, and the episode is called Beyond the Sea. Yeah, but it's different. Yeah. Song. But now it's now it's a jazzy song called La Mer that has the same melody it, as yeah, Beyond the Sea. It's the same uh, same song, I think. But yeah, it's probably without the lyrics. The right, La Mer, exactly. Doo, 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 doo. Yeah, it's yeah. the same song. But yeah, um, I just I just love stuff like that. It is really interesting when they have to like change a song all of a sudden. Well, uh, obligatory re wrestling reference at this point. Uh, which we haven't done for something like 20 years. It's episodes. not very obligatory anymore, honestly. It, it's, it's time <laughs> for your main event. <laughs> the AEW, uh, well, Vince McMahon, the owner of WWE, is notoriously reticent to ever 
purchase the rights to music uh, yes. for his wrestlers. And it is largely because he doesn't want to have to then continue to pay them in perpetuity when he wants to have those wrestlers associated with video games, DVDs in the past, streaming, and all right. the rest of their merchandising, which, you know, makes sense from a business perspective, I suppose. But currently the big rival, or up-and-coming rival for the WWE, AEW, on TNT, uh, <laughs> and the Fightful Network is... Or Fight Network, I can't remember. Either way. It's Fight Network, they, yeah. Yeah, their uh, CEO, I guess, Tony Khan, is going... He's spending money like it's going out of fashion on buying actual songs to have his wrestlers come out to. And I don't even think, speaking from personal taste, that they are necessarily the sorts of songs I imagine a wrestler to advance to the ring to. It's like uh, Orange Cassidy has Where Is My Mind by the Pixies, which I I perfectly enjoy as a song. It's a great song. But if I was to imagine a wrestler making his way down the aisle for a fight, I wouldn't be thinking of Where Is My Mind? (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, obviously there's moments of do do do. It's, it's a good song, but you've got Wild Thing uh, for John Moxley, Moxley. now, mm-hmm. and Wild Thing on the face of it sounds like an excellent opening song in the eighties. Yes, yeah, but it it isn't, <laughs> and so at some point uh, either they're going to not pay for this anymore. Uh, which means I'll be interested to see what they change these songs to. But Tony Khan is saying he has bought the rights or intends to pay for all of these in perpetuity and has dumped a lot of money on doing so. And, yeah, it's just some really strange musical choices uh, that that he seems to be making. But I suppose when your dad is a multi-billionaire and he has said, you can have your inheritance now, spend it how you like... Uh, he's thinking, well, I like the Trogs, and I like the <laughs> <laughs> Can I buy so the Trogs? I'm... No, I can't buy a whole band. But I can do this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but yes, uh, uh, we're not here to talk about music. We're not here to talk about subtitles. Uh, we're here to talk about freelancing, which, what? as I say that, I realize both music and subtitles are usually created by freelancers, but just neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> we, we, we inadvertently backdoored our way into the topic. I love it. Right. By, by purely by accident, I assure you, there was no planning on our part because we're not good at that. No, we're geniuses. What? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Um, so last week, um, we talked a lot about um, what it's like to freelance for Onyx Path because the last time we actually dug into the, the freelance experience for Onyx Path was 2018. Um, Nothing's changed since then, right? No, no. The world's basically the same except for it is <laughs> significantly more on fire. <laughs> but aside from that... Um, and I like how Dixie's laugh turned to kind of half sobbing near the end there, which is about as <laughs> <laughs> 2021 in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing before you cry into your drink. Um, but uh, so we, we kind of did a recap last week of some of the new stuff we've done. And then we started going through what the experience of making a book is like from a, a freelance writer's perspective. And we stopped on red lines, uh, which is a good time to kind of dive back into it. So Matthew, um, what do you kind of do when you approach the redline process? How do you coach other developers to approach the redline process? And what should people expect to see from the redline process? 
Well, uh, first and foremost, the Redline process is a very intimidating process for new writers, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, no one likes to be told their work isn't very good, and hopefully that isn't what we convey when we Redline your work. Yeah, um, I, have, I have never seen someone just say, this isn't very good. <laughs> like, it's just oh, I have. Uh, I haven't written it, but... But, uh, I mean, Eddie can probably speak with more experience than I, and I'm not saying that's because his work is worse than mine, but it's because <laughs> there was a certain uh, trend for developers in the past to be more acerbic yes. than now. And I think uh, a lot of our working culture has changed over the last five, six years to be more constructive. And that's the first thing a developer needs to have in mind when they are redlining. The first thing you're going to do is simply read a manuscript. If you're going mm -hmm. to do it well, you just need to read it. Whether it is good, bad, passive, active, riddled with typos, uh, completely on point or off point, you just read it because you need to digest the whole thing truly before you can start redlining it. Um, and the next thing you need to do as a developer is then you will start going through that manuscript and leaving comments, making corrections where not necessary. And not all of those comments need to be critical. You should be praising what stands out, what what is marked out as, as really good, solid ideas, because, yeah, no one likes to be told, well, these are all the things you need to change, and you're not told anything good. There's no need to do that. So I like to try and create some parity in my comments of good and critical. But importantly, the critical feedback does need to be constructive. There's no point just, and I have received red lines like this before, <coughs> uh, comments that will say something like, what is this? Or... What is this? What is this? Is this a dagger I see before me? Uh, I've I had a comment. In fact, I made this. Uh, I made a post about it on Facebook relatively recently because there is an A State Kickstarter currently going on from our friends oh, Handywork uh, Games, A State Second Edition, and it looks oh, wow. beautiful. Now, I'm the reason I mentioned this, I didn't work on it, but A State as a concept is a game that is trapped within a rather dystopian single city. For for intents and purposes, it is the only bastion of civilization in the world. You cannot escape its borders. And the reason I mention that is because I wrote a scenario for a game, and the red line I got back, or one of the red lines I got back, was, why do I feel like I cannot leave this setting? Uh, from your writing. This isn't fucking A-State. Now, in retrospect, I can look at that and say, ah, oh, well, that's funny, and he makes an incisive comment about another game, which I enjoy, uh, where you are trapped within a city prison. But this isn't a constructive comment. This is just you venting your spleen at me, the writer, and am I supposed to take this with a big smile on my face, or am I just going to feel mm -hmm. bad? And some people have thicker skin, some people can digest this kind of commentary in a more constructive way than others, but it's a hell of a lot more helpful if you phrase it in a constructive way and don't just come off as attacking. And uh, this is one of the biggest challenges with red lines, I would say, for a developer, because if you're going through a manuscript of 
10 to 20,000 words. And the writer, through no fault of their own or because they haven't been taught or because it slipped their mind or for whatever reason, keeps making the same error. That isn't a personal attack on you, the developer. Mm-hmm. And it is frustrating, but developers should not comment that it is Correct. frustrating. There is no benefit to saying, this fucking error again? You know, what? what is wrong with you? <laughs> and words to that effect, because the writer, when they made this error consistently, did not realize they were making it consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually if I see an error like that, I just put a comment on the first time it appears. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, this should be this. Please change throughout. And that that is exactly right. Uh, I I do a variation on that. I will amend uh, the first few times it appears. I will then leave a comment to say you may have noticed that I have changed this on mm-hmm. three occasions prior, and. This is how we like to do it. Please look through your manuscript and change it to this way throughout. Because, again, that's constructive. And also, it uh, it's basically means you don't have to lacquer an entire draft with red lines. You don't have to keep calling out the same error because you've called it out three times. They are aware that it's an error. You can basically say, now it's your job to find them. And a diligent mm-hmm. writer will. Um, yeah, if you're using, you know, almost any program, control plus F, like just yep. <laughs> find every place that thing appears. Don't don't find replace. Like look at them individually <laughs> because otherwise you get things like the wizard. The wizard, um, yes. <laughs> but like you you do want to go through, look at all of them. I don't like I I do this a lot for um even when I'm editing. Like if I if I'm editing Pugmire for instance, I control F every single chapter for the word hand. And mm-hmm. I go through, and it, if it says handle, that's okay. We use that word. If it says, you know, handiwork, we that's that's an okay word to use. Um, but if it says, you know, held the sword in their hand, that's wrong. It should be paw. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's also something that I've gotten pretty good at doing when I write for Pugmire. Like that is, I have I have told all, all my Pugmire editors this, and like it is like I I don't want it's the very last thing I do is I control F every single chapter for hand mm-hmm. because that is the biggest mistake because it's such a part of the English language. Yeah. I still yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, but like, yeah. I, I have a long list. I have, uh, well, I'm just reeling a few of them off. Uh, and these aren't all necessarily errors. It just, it mm-hmm. tends to be in writing that overuse of any of these can result in things like passive voice, poorly structured sentences and whatnot. So has, have, that, will, there is, there, have, there are, it is, it was, he is, she is, they all, I am he, <laughs> I am he as you yeah. are, he as you are me, and we are all together. Uh, you are, yeah, you are, <laughs> you have, towards, afterwards, backwards. Forwards? Um, do, you have, yeah. do you have forwards on there? Forwards should be on there, but I haven't written it down. Um, but point being that there are common trends none of them are deal breakers Uh, these are just common errors that everyone makes when they're writing especially on their first few assignments that you have to get into the trend of catching out yourself and a good developer will point these things out in red lines so that you can educate yourself as a writer now yeah like I, I I overuse adverbs like I will raise my hand and call myself out um yeah. everything is is quite quite heavy or you know whatever mm-hmm. it's not it's not just very. heavy yeah, yeah very like I, I try not to use very but i use all the other ones <laughs> um 
And and then like yeah, having to catch that is a big thing. I use quite a lot, uh, and I think it's one of those things. I was asked recently, when is it acceptable to use adverbs in role playing text? And there isn't a simple yes no uh, binary answer to this, mm-hmm. uh, but you can get away with a lot in dialogue. I will say, because mm-hmm. dialogue should sound as people sound when they talk, mm-hmm. when they speak to each other. Uh, but when you're handling prose, rules, text, even fiction of flavorful kind, it does not to need to be filled with adverbs and, and lots of passive voice. Save yeah. that for dialogue, and it will make the dialogue pop more because that's where you're reserving those words for use. I also think it depends on how interesting the adverb you're using is. Like, mm-hmm. there's a very big difference between very, like, oh, this is, this is very heavy, and it's incredibly heavy. Excruciatingly. Yeah, like, those are mm-hmm. interesting words, and they mean something more than very. Because, like, very heavy, are are we talking 80 pounds? Like, an, an, an 80-pound box that is difficult for me to lift? Or are we talking uh, two tons, you know? So that's that's when you like have to find the word that conveys what you're trying to say better, yeah. Um, which usually is 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 not very or often or quite or whatever. Like it's like no, it's it's better just to go for the hyperbolic a little bit sometimes. Yeah, and not not you know not to mention words like pretty and quite are they they have two meanings depending on who is saying it, how mm-hmm. you're because something can be pretty bad. Or something can be pretty bad. It's a, uh, you know, it's uh, the old thing. I think it depends on where you are in America. If you say something is quite good or quite good, you're either saying it's slightly good or oh, quite, quite good. It's that's all oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but do, do you want me to carry on? I know, obviously, I've spoken at a fair length now, but there are more things I can say about red lines. Well, no, I mean, I, I think that covers the high points. Um, um, it, it's more important, I think, because I think we'll go into some of the editing too, but um, uh, the, the key point is that all of this you'll, you'll hear is, is that we're not trying to tell the writer they're, they're bad necessarily. Uh, no, not absolutely a, uh, not. Than a moral or quality judgment is the I need you to fix these things. Yeah, the other thing that I will point out just for our, our freelancers' sake are if you get a red line and you feel incredibly strongly, it should be the way that you did it initially for whatever reason, whether it's because of a cultural issue that maybe the developer isn't aware of, or whether it's because, like, I've, I've pushed back on things where I was like, actually, I edit and grammatically this is correct. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you, you can put that in there. Like, you could leave a comment saying, like, I, or, or I mean, if, if you can, obviously, re- reach out to your dev before you turn in your final draft to talk about it but like don't be afraid to push back on a red line if you if you feel it's inaccurate and talk to your developer and they can walk you through their reasoning and sometimes they'll backpedal on it if you have a good reason for wanting to do it the way you did it um like i had i had one developer that wanted me to cut like every instance of the word that because matthew trained them Right. And I was like, no, Matthew, you actually do need to use this word occasionally. Never. <laughs> like, <laughs> like not, not all the time, but there are sentences in this that will not be sentences if I take it out. Yeah, mm. that is a sometimes word, yes. Yeah. So, like, yeah, like, just talk to your developer. Um, if you ever feel like 
a red line is like, like I said, missing the point or not getting it. Like talk to your dev. We, I know we talked a lot in the last episode about communication and how important that was. Um, and that's, that applies to this process too. So like, if you get a red line that you're unhappy with, don't just go like vent about it to your friends, like go to your dev, have a conversation. Yeah. Um, because uh, I, I assure you that your dev was acting in good faith. And it uh, also applies from the developer to the writer. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest changes you're likely to see through red lines aren't going to be grammatical. Although if they are, then your job is an easy one, because, yeah. in my view, because right. it's far easier to change those kinds of issues than the alternative, which is if the developer needs you to change something tonally or at a content level. So this would be, for instance, if you were writing, uh, let's use let's use they came from beneath the sea, for example, yeah. and decided to write put in a purely horrific antagonist that had some kind of real um, torture porn like power <laughs> that was completely out of whack with the rest of the game. Now, when you were writing this, you may have thought, this is fantastic, I could use this in my game. The other writers really seem to like my idea as well. And the developer may have even given a thumbs up to give it a try. But the developer has got to find a way of communicating with you, the writer, that while the idea may be good, it may not be a good idea for this game. And sometimes that red line needs to turn into a conversation away from the document so that you'll have a chat via Slack or email, or you might have a meeting to just talk it over. And again, as Dixie said, if you feel really strongly about this concept, maybe the developer is off base, or maybe there's a way you can essentially negotiate it mm -hmm. to a position where you're both happy and you're not having to just cut something completely that you spent a lot of time on. Yeah, I, I found Beyond the Grave to be a, a really interesting line to walk when I was working on that for the same reason. Like, you want it to be horror, but you don't want it to be so horrific that it's like, you know, a, like Saw movie versus a campy movie. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that was that was a really fun line to walk of being like, oh, this is weird and gory and whatever. But also look at the tropes. Look at the tropes. The tropes are funny, you know, Um. and then like. I, I often have to look at my tone a lot on Pugmire, too, which I love writing, um, partially because I'm very, I am I am better at just plain language writing than I am at, like, flowery writing, mm -hmm. and Pugmire is very good at being plain language, mm -hmm. but having to walk that line of being family-friendly and not sound like you're going to talk down to anybody is really important. Yeah. Um, you are you are bringing people in. You are not over-explaining things. Right. Um, and, and I think the last point on, on red lines is that uh, a lot of this advice is coming from the perspective of the developer needs you to do a thing. And there's an implicit, you should have known this. Um, one, that's not always true, especially if you're a newer writer. There's going to be things that, um, oh, I should have told you, blah, or you'll learn over experience, probably shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. But also um, when the writer gets all, when the developer gets all the drafts in, they may notice something in the course of the drafts that change what you originally thought you had to write. So something you may have written in good faith, the developer may have to say, okay, I do need you to change this now because it, it's it turns out another chapter covered up better or it turns out mm -hmm. this is not going to go the way I wanted it to or even I just don't even need this section anymore. Um, so sometimes the red line process is a very early content edit, like Matthew said, but it's not because you did anything wrong. Sometimes it's the book just going out going in a different direction. Um, yeah. 
books rarely line up exactly to the outline. There, there's usually some, some adjustments along the way. Um, so then that goes into final drafts, uh, which are basically, uh, we kind of already talked a lot about this, doing the things that Redlines asked you to do. Um, yeah, just implementing Redlines. <laughs> can I, um, can I throw a quick suggestion in regarding finals? Sure. Uh, so part of it is going to be that when you, the writer, read your Redlines, don't just try correcting them immediately. I know the temptation will be there to do that. Uh, almost all developers will tell you and certainly should tell you read them, then spend some time away. Don't think that you have to handle them immediately, unless you've only got like three or four. Um, um, I actually disagree with that slightly. Oh, okay. Well, uh, if you can hold that thought. Sure, finish um, your thought. The, the other thing is, if a developer has left comments in the margin of your draft, and they often will, and they'll sometimes ask you questions... Like, um, I would love to know your thoughts on how you see this working in the setting. I've got this issue, that issue, whatever. Right. Or is don't, this a state? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't reply <laughs> to the comment. Don't reply to the comment in the Word document. That isn't what mm -hmm. the, the question is there for. You will need to message or email the developer with your thoughts. Now, some developers will just not leave questions like that. They'll ask you directly, which works. But there is no point clarifying your point if the developer is only going to see your answer when the book enters development, because by that point, it's a pain to get you to change it if you still haven't come to a resolution. Right. So, Eddie, uh, you, you were going to disagree with my perfectly valid view. Uh, yes, so you're completely wrong. No, um, you're, you're mostly <laughs> right. Uh, I just know um, something that uh, I've recently come to understand is that I do have some anxiety around red lines, even around even this... 20 years in, um, when I get Redlines back, I still have a small amount of anxiety around Redlines, sometimes larger, especially if it's a newer client. Um, and I did exactly what you suggested for a long time, which is I read it, I sit on it, and what I've found is I obsess about them. Hmm. Um, and sometimes I end up overthinking the response sometimes. Uh, so what I have landed on and what I've encouraged other people to do in the past year or so um, is that if there's a really obvious immediate change, like um, use this word instead of that word and the, the track changes there. All I have to do is accept the track changes. If there's something that's like, yeah. okay, yeah, that's obviously the right answer. Just do it right then. That's, that's yeah. what I do. Yeah. I don't, I don't sit on my red lines. Um, if there are things that you're not as immediate about, um, either think about them or take a first stab at them, but leave the comments there. Don't resolve comments that you're not sure about and then come back and go, okay, was that the right path? Um, because sometimes your first instinct is the right answer, so you don't want to overthink it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a lot of value in not getting wrapped up in the heat of the moment, because certainly there are going to be times where you get comments and you're like, no, that's wrong. Fuck this. Like, he's always talking about. And it's, it's going to be your instinct. Even if you don't say that, it's going to be your, your gut reaction. Mm -hmm. yeah. So sleeping on that, and then because I have found a lot of times when I had that first kind of, I don't know what they're talking about, and I come back and it's like, okay, actually, no, I see what they're saying. And maybe like, either it wasn't phrased quite right or there's a nuance that maybe the comment wasn't quite encapsulating. So, okay, I see what you're saying. I'll make this change. However, that does have repercussions here, here, and here. Um, so I thought to make those changes. Thinking about that helps, but then by collapsing the amount of pending red lines to, okay, these are obvious changes. Yes, go ahead and make those. And then, okay, here's these 15 or 10 things I need to think about some more. That's a much more manageable amount than I have a hundred comments 
and it feels overwhelming. Oh my God, it's so wrong. And you go through it. Oh, most of these are just like, I forgot to use a comma here. Or there's some comma splices. And now look at it, it's only mm. like 20. Mm. That's a much more manageable amount that you can sit down that you think through and wrap your head around. So um, the overall instinct of if you're having a strong reaction, definitely walk away from it. Mm-hmm. But also if you're feeling overwhelmed by it, just knocking out the ones that are right in front of you that are really obvious binary. I'll just change these. Just get those out of your way so that you can focus on the ones that you need to think about more. Yeah, that is exactly what I do if, like, I have, you know, miscapitalized a term, for instance. Right. I will go through and fix that right away. Or I will go through and accept where somebody just changed one word to a different word or fixed a typo or whatever. Because for all that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good editor, I'm not a great typist. Like, I, I make typos a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't catch them because sometimes they're typos that Windows doesn't catch. Um, Because they're not actually, like, not words. They're just the wrong word. And so I am down to just go through and, like, accept all of those. Um, And, yeah, then I will, like, think about the other ones. Like, oh, okay, they want me to expand this. How do they want me to expand this? You know? Um, I wrote some fiction recently for the first time, and Matthew was incredibly helpful in that. Because I was like, I want to write fiction. I want, like, short little fiction, funny funny bits. That's one thing. But, like, I do need some help because I haven't really done this before. Um, and so that that was a really nice conversation to have too. So yeah, it just depends. Now, uh, I uh, and yeah, your fiction was excellent, Ixie. So uh, I'm very glad you were on board for that. Uh, the so where I disagree, and obviously I'm not trying to make this a thing, Eddie. <laughs> we'll fight to the death. Yes, but fight, we will fight, fight, fight to the death. Fight, 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 I know fight. we we obviously missed our wrestle fest at Gen Con last year because of all, all all this, but we can still fight to the death the next time we meet. Um, is and I'm I I feel I'm probably speaking largely from my own personal vantage, so your mileage may vary, and all the rest of the caveats is one of the reasons I don't make changes immediately is because I don't feel I learn uh, if I correct mistakes immediately without spending time thinking about them. And I I accept that some people can process the feedback immediately and will not then go on to make that mistake in future. But in my personal experience, I, I feel like it's better to sit on them because then, or, or at least make a note of the error that you've made, especially that if it's a consistent with. one, mm-hmm. um, rather than just accepting all, for instance, or or, or yeah, or amending a capitalization because you see you've got it wrong. For me, no, no, that no. would go straight over my head uh, as soon as I've done it, unless I have spent time actually mulling it over. No, that's that's a, that's a good that's a good there's a good point in there that I think is worth unpacking is that um if you get red lines back if you go cool I'll just accept all and turn around back to the writer or to the developer no never do that you should absolutely review every single comment and decide mm-hmm. um, now at the end of the day the developer is your client as a freelancer and so they probably have a strong reason for doing that so if you don't have a compelling counter argument you might as well just go ahead and do that um, there's plenty of times where it's like I don't know why we did that but I don't really have anything against it. So I guess we're doing that. And that's, that's in all my head and developer never sees that conversation. Um, I only push back on, actually, I think this is a problem if we go this route and here's why I'm just talking through. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it should never be, well, they know what they're doing. So I'm just going to blindly accept. No, you should really be at least be looking at them. <laughs> um, uh, some of that for me is I have been doing this long enough. I know my shortcuts. I know my problems. Mm-hmm. And so when it pops back up, it's like, oh, yep, I did that again. Yep, sure. Uh, you yeah. taught me out. Thank you for catching that. Um, 
but you're right. If, I, if, if, if developers like do this, do this, do this, you know, especially if I see the, you know, uh, revised throughout, um, then that's not a blind, I'm going to change all these. It's the, okay, let me think about why that is. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to do, I'll probably control F to find those locations, but like Dixie said, I'm not going to just find replace. It's going to be able to go to those locations, read each section, mm-hmm. and see in context why this has to be changed and learn from that perspective. I find I retain that better if I'm doing it in the heat of the moment. If I sit and think about it, I will talk my way. I will find, I will talk myself out of that. That's, that's I'll, really I will justify it in my head. But if I'm in the middle of it, it's like, okay, this, I'm assuming there's a good reason for it. And then I'll find, okay, maybe the reason is blah. But if I sit on it, it's like, well, actually, no, I don't, it wasn't really that big of a deal. And so I just don't retain it. So I think it's really up to how individuals learn. I have to say, I love that we're about 45 minutes in and we've only talked about red lines. Oh, yeah. In the next <laughs> edition of Developer <laughs> to, be fa- to be fair, we don't have Eddie much and Dixie left. argue about the placement of commas inside of quotation marks. Funny you should mention that actually, because um, <laughs> really, from a, from a freelancer perspective, um, after final drafts, you turn your final drafts in. It's, it's usually the end of your experience. Um, but uh, another group of freelancers we do have that we, frankly, we do not talk enough about are freelance editors, uh, and that's usually a stage after this. The developer develops the manuscript. Um, it does go through approvals, which. We could do a whole episode on just approvals, but the short version is the key people that need to be involved will look it over and make their comments, sometimes in the back to the developer who will then rework it on their own. They yeah. almost never go back to the writers. Yeah, whether that, that is um, a, a licensing partner, mm-hmm. like uh, Paradox, for instance, obviously looks at all of our Paradox and properties, or whether it is, you know, someone developed a small they came from project and Matthew and Richie to look at it, right. or Eddie needs to look at a Pugmire project. Rich you look at everything. Rich looks at everything. Um, uh, yeah. Although he will often say, "I don't, I don't feel a need to look this over," but he always has the option to look everything over. Well, that's that's that's, that's what I meant. It was like Rich, yeah. Rich doesn't have to read everything cover to cover. Right. Um. He he certainly can. He owns the company. He can do whatever he right. wants. Uh. But he doesn't always have to, especially if it's someone that he know turns in clean work on the regular. Right. So yeah. I would much rather Rich go, nah, I look at this, than Rich go, why the heck, how does this get out there without me saying it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so it is signed off on, it's approved, uh, it then goes to editing. So Dixie, explain the editing process. What? Explain the editing process. Um, it, uh, you, you edit the book. So <laughs> editing Done, okay, is- anyway, after that yeah, layout. <laughs> done. Uh, so editing is interesting to me because a lot of, a lot, a lot of industries have editors as a, a thing, and every industry uses them differently. Um, for instance, an editor of a, of a fiction anthology is the person that puts the anthology together and like manages the project. Whereas at Onyx Path and for a lot of role-playing companies, your editor is really a, a copy editor, is what most industries would call it. Um, because you're not going through and like changing the content of the book, really. You're just changing, you're just fixing grammar and making sure it follows our style guide. Um, for whatever game line you're working on, uh, which does mean you have to reference the style guide a lot, especially if you're like, if if you're a Phronix Path and you work on a lot of different games, you're going to forget when X is capitalized or mm. when, you know, Y is supposed to be italics or whatever. Um, so going through all that and fixing it. So this, this is when we fix, like, you know, making sure that the title of the game is in bold or italicized if it's Pugmire, um, making sure that it is correct grammatically and also making sure that it's clear um the thing about game books that i i I talk about fairly often is that they are rule books 
Um, so giving it to an editor who has not seen it before, like they weren't involved with the writing, they weren't involved with the outlining, they have not seen this book at all, and giving it to a set of fresh eyes to look over and go, I don't understand this paragraph. It is 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 also really really helpful for the developer. Um, I have left comments on things where I'm like, this can be read two ways, and I don't know which way the person means. You know, right. Um, and that's, that's, that's also helpful because we should clarify that before it goes out to the general public. And there are occasionally times where, um, while it may be grammatically correct to go one way, for rules clarity, you have to be slightly grammatically incorrect for rules clarity. Yes, or where it's just, it, it sounds clunkier if it's grammatically correct. A right. lot of times where, like, I will let a sentence end on a preposition if that's how people talk. Mm -hmm. Like, who's it for? As opposed to, like, for whom is it? Right. Uh, because that sounds clunky, even though that's accurate. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I still tend to write like that, so I apologize to editors who have to correct my, uh, my reluctance to end sentences with prepositions. Like I said, it, 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 it depends on what part of the rules it's in, where it is. We make a lot of judgment calls. Um, leaving comments where something is completely unclear and then occasionally leaving comments on something where we like we, we, we changed it but it might, might not be clear why we changed it so we need to let the developer know um, like I change words a lot if that word was used in the previous sentence yeah um, because I'm like this is repetitive so I'm just going to give it a synonym but I want to let you know why I just randomly changed this word because you didn't realize it was you know used earlier in the same sentence or breaking up a sentence that has, you know, eight commas into two sentences, because that's helpful. Um, so yeah, we do all that with word uh, track changes on. So when we, when we give it back to the developer, it either looks like it's been redlined, <laughs> or it looks like it's just been poked at a little, depending on what, what needed to happen with it. Um, generally, we don't have to do too much, uh, mostly because our developers are very good at turning in clean work. But every now and then, I'll, I'll get a piece that I'm like, this is all passive voice, and I have to completely rewrite it. Um, if you look at my editing tests that I have on the editing submissions Google form, uh, there is a, a whole paragraph of just mounds of passive voice that I expect people to completely rewrite pretty much. Um, but yeah, you just go, go through the whole book, amend everything. Uh, add your name to the credits, something that a lot of editors forget to do when they're new. <laughs> right. Like, we send you the credit file. I do want you to edit the credit file. Like, if people's names aren't alphabetical, fix it. Um, but also, like, put your name in there. Because otherwise, we won't know who edited it. <laughs> it's a mystery. Yeah. And if you're ever unsure about something, I find that just making the change... And then leaving a note to the developer is the best way to go about it. Because um, you're not going to see it again once it goes back to the dev. If they have any questions about editing or, or an, an editor's choices, they'll usually come to me as the lead editor. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know some editors have wondered if they were involved in the proofing process, and they are not. That is all internal. Um, if you edited a book and you want to go through it at a RADA phase, <laughs> you're more than welcome to. Right. Um, that's, and that's, some do. That's fine. Yeah, and, and, and some do, and some leave really great comments. Uh, we we have an indexer who always catches, like, six tiny little things when she does our indexes. Mm -hmm. So even though technically the book is eroded, we'll, we'll go through and fix those six things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's, that's, that's editing. It's, it's, it's copy editing. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you don't have to know every single mechanic to do it. I know some people are concerned about knowing, like, the game systems. But really, we expect the developers to know the systems. 
Um, there are little things that you might catch here in there. Uh, hyphens instead of minus signs is a big one. People always do hyphens, and it's like, no, it should be a minus sign. It's a different character. Um, N dashes instead of M dashes, little things like that. Making sure things are in the correct styles, which is a whole different ball of wax. Um, but that's all kind of collaborative between the devs. Right. Um, I will say that, um, uh, like, like Dick said, we don't expect editors to catch rules. They're not rules editors in the sense of, do these rules make sense? And do these rules do what they need to do? That's all on the dev side. But having at least basic familiarity with the rules of the game you're editing will help you understand what is this rule trying to say mm -hmm. if it's unclear. Um, so little things like uh, if you're doing a Trinity game, oh, this is supposed to be enhancements, um, so the plus should be here versus on the, on the other side of it. Or right. um, this is a complication, but it says compulsion for some reason. No, that probably means complication based on the context of everything else around it. Yeah, or if you're editing like Chronicles and Condition isn't capitalized when it should right. be. So yes, it is helpful to know that stuff, but also a lot of that's in the style guide. Right. And if you're editing a source book for us, I always send the editor a PDF of the core book if they need it. Mm -hmm. um, so they can cross-reference. And sometimes, like, it wasn't codified in the first place. And so we're like, okay, we'll make a decision right now, you know? Yeah. Um, but generally, you can go back to, like, if you're editing, like, a Changeling supplement, you can go back and look at Changeling 2nd Edition and find all that you need to know from looking at words in context. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and then... After uh, editing, it goes to layout, uh, and then also during that, uh, art happens, um, and that's pretty largely in the art director's hands. Uh, for many years, Mike pretty much did all of that. Now, um, Mike has uh, a friend that's to him as well that handle both layout as well as art direction, so he has other art directors. He has other layout artists who handle all of that. Um, those layouts when they're finalized, then go to developer for what's called proofing. Um, and something we say all the time, and we'll probably say until the end of time, that is not when page selections are filled in. Um, <laughs> nor is errata. Nor is errata. Um, but basically this stage, it's really just, is the text where it needs to be? Um, are there any obvious errors? Like are the footers and headers correct? Are the page numbers correct? Um, is the text, does it look inaccurate? Um, is the sidebar in the wrong place? that kind of, of proofing. Um, yeah. Some developers uh, also use this opportunity to kind of get some last minute uh, things they found maybe since editing. Um, what it's not expected to be is developers sitting down and reading the book cover to cover. So um, if you know, you've know you developed the core book, we expect you to turn that proofing around in about a week or so. We're not expecting you to read your 400 page book cover to cover. You've done that already. It should have already been done. Mm -hmm. um, if there are certain problem areas, I have found like, okay, I know that this area is going to be a challenge. So I'll make sure I'll read like this, this chunk of a chapter or maybe even a whole chapter. If it's like the, a bunch of stat blocks, I'll, I'll read that cover to cover because there's a lot of tables and stuff and stuff can get moved around. I will check those to make sure the text is flowing correctly. Um, but I don't, I never read the book cover to cover at that stage. I only focus on the very specific target areas. Um, then we'll go through a couple rounds of proofing usually, uh, if it was a Kickstarter project, um, it goes out to backers as a beta PDF. Um, if it uh, just goes out into sales, then we put it out in sale as PDF only. And then we have a couple of weeks in both cases of errata. People put in Google, uh, uh, Google form. The developer looks over the errata and makes a decision on the errata. We do not mm -hmm. assume that fans are necessarily cognizant of all of the things they bring forward. Sometimes they'll make edit suggestions that are actually contrary to our style guide. 
Um, sometimes they'll make rule mm -hmm. suggestions that don't line up with other things that perhaps they just didn't read that section yet when they put the garata in. Um, sometimes they want you to basically rewrite the game because it's not the game they want. That, that's not your call to make now. Um, you really should be making small changes at the errata stage. Things like this number is off or this sentence in retrospect is now a little unclear. We need to clarify that sentence. That You should be making small changes like that. You should not be adding or subtracting large chunks of it unless there's a significant problem, which does happen occasionally. Um, but again, the writers are, are at this stage out and paid by this point. Um, uh, so writers have often come into the errata process. It's like, hey, I wrote this section and I noticed this changed. I have a concern about that and you know, put it in the errata thing. That sometimes happens. Not often, but sometimes. Um, and we do listen to all of that. Uh, again, sometimes a significant problem has pops up during the layout stage and we have to actually resolve that. Uh, so it's good that we know before it gets published. But it, it, all of that is is judged and engaged. Um, if it's a huge change, we have a conversation about it. That's the point of the errata process. Okay, how did it get this far? Is this actually as big of a problem as it is perceived to be? Let's make a, a judgment call on that. And then it goes to the print process, which is entirely mechanical. And again, probably another episode about the actual printing process, but it's not worth it for the purposes of this conversation. Um, but that's it. And, and I think the, the big threads we've done both last week and this week are we've talked about communication. I, I, I will never feel like I'm trusting that enough. Um, uh, just not responding to questions or, or just not bringing up concerns is not helpful. Um, I understand it can be stressful. I understand it can be concerning. You don't want to get into fights. Uh, but like Matthew said, we try to develop a culture of collaboration and constructive criticism rather than uh, abuse and argumentation. Um, previous people who worked at former companies that are not Onyx Path may have had that style, but we don't generally tolerate that style at Onyx Path. We would much rather have a, a good conversation and get to a better product because at the end of the day, the goal is not to assign blame. The goal is to make a better book. Uh, and the other one is uh, to just don't make things, don't make mindless changes. Be mindful of whether you're making a change or making a criticism. Mm -hmm. Think about the context of what's going on here, why you might be having that conversation, why you might be having those thoughts, and and just think through the problem. So learn from it. If it's a, you know, hey, this, this is a commas place, learn what a commas place is, don't do it. Um, or if it's a, you know, I, I know you have a trend to use very a lot, so... You know, be, be mindful of when you use that. Um, any rule can be broken, but you can't just break it because it feels right. You need to be able to articulate why that rule is being broken at stage and defend it if necessary. So being mindful of the changes is helpful. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that either of you wanted to mention that I have not covered in regards to what freelancers should generally know working for us? We have an HR mailbox. Yes. Yeah. If you ever have a problem with another freelancer or a developer or anything else that you don't feel comfortable bringing to one of us for whatever reason, uh, there is an HR mailbox. We have a completely separate from the company HR rep that looks into stuff. Um, and you're, you're more than welcome to reach out. Uh, if you're having an issue with another freelancer and you feel like you can reach out to one of us, that's great. We're happy to help. But if for any reason you don't feel that, then okay. Like, please reach out to our HR rep. Yeah. And let's see. What else is there? Ah, uh, I've got one. And uh, this is uh, freelancing in general, but it's hopefully helpful advice. If you're... And uh, this is, uh, again, caveat, caveat. Uh, uh, 
this is me speaking from my personal experience. You may disagree, but this is my view. And it's that a lot of people who get into writing start developing a taste for it, and they start really enjoying it, and they start thinking about how can I make this into a full-time gig, or even supplementing my income on a regular basis, that kind of thing. And the same applies for developers, editors, every other part of the process. Now, one thing I will say, and this is my advice to you, is that do not lock on to Onyx Path as your only source of work. I see a lot of writers doing this, and then I see those same writers saying, well, I'm not getting enough work, so therefore I'm not getting Mm. enough money, which means I can't take this seriously. And what I have found immensely useful in my own writing and developing career is working for multiple companies because not only does it give you a breadth of experience and it allows you to see the process from lots of different angles and manage in lots of different ways, it puts you in contact with different people across the industry. It builds your resume, which is important. Uh, It gives you lots of new skills. And it also allows you to vary your palette a little. It means you get to challenge yourself. Because if your number one game is Vampire the Masquerade and that is the only game you have ever written, you will not automatically be someone that the developer of X game thinks to hire. But if you are the kind of freelancer that is trying to work in a myriad of properties for lots of different companies, then you can say, I'm a, you know, I'm an all-rounder. I can work on lots of different things. Here, I worked on this and that and that. Mm-hmm. And it really helps to sell you when you can say that this developer at this company can give me a good reference about my work or words to that effect. So one of the worst things I feel writers can do to to, to sell themselves short is really silo themselves with a single company. Uh, they will they benefit so much by working for lots of different ones. Completely agree. Um, all of us on this podcast, we work for other companies besides Onyx Path. Um, none of us are exclusive to Onyx Path. It is the majority of our work, and it's some of the work I think we're, we're, we're happiest and proudest of. Definitely. Um, but we work for other companies, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us have at least one anecdote of, hey, I, I worked for this company and they do this thing interesting. Let's see what we could do to uh, adapt that or vice versa. Oh, this company does something and, and we do it way better than that, you know? Um, but we learn. We, we learn about how we could do our jobs better. Um, like Matthew says, it improves your, your, your palette, your options. Um, and even inside Onyx Path, uh, even if you do want to just yeah, you know, I just really love Onyx Path games. I don't really want to work for anybody else. You know, that's fine. Um, but consider breaking out of different game lines. Like, you know, don't just write for just World Darkness, you know, because, you know, there's only so many World Darkness books to go around. You know, look into expanding into Chronicles Darkness or Exalted or whatever, you know, Trinity. Um, try to find other avenues because it can be challenging to keep all those game systems separate and distinct. I know, I've been there. But if you learn a trick or a skill from a one project, you could bring that back to the projects you're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And it just makes the whole thing better. Yeah. Like I, I currently exclusively work on Onyx Path stuff just because I was getting a little burnt out. And I find that like I needed to 
put all my attention on Onyx Path. Fair. But like you're like even within Onyx Path though, as as you were saying, I do bounce around between lines. And some of our writers that get the most work are the writers that have proven themselves to be versatile enough to work on different lines. Like if you can write Pugmire and also Vampire and also They Came From and also Trinity, then you're an asset. I can. Yes. <laughs> so can I. Um <laughs> Or like if like if you can swing between Exalted and Pugmire, great. That's that's awesome. I love people like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and not not everybody has that. That's fine. Some people are very much have like their writing style that works for their line. And like I'm not saying that you're not an asset because we have some Scion writers, especially who are really 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 good at Scion, and that's pretty much all they write for us. And that's fine. That's that's great too. Um, we have a lot of Exalted writers who only write for Exalted, but Exalted takes a special sk- skill set. Um, but yeah, please like go go find other freelance projects. We don't have like a non compete clause or anything in our contracts. Like you can go right. work for other companies. So if you want to uh, become a freelancer, um, we we have submission guidelines. Uh, feel free to go to the website, follow submission guidelines. We've talked about that. I won't beat that into the ground again. Um, and once you become a freelancer, or if you're already a freelancer or weren't aware of this, um, we do have uh, some uh, private channels on our on Pep Discord where people. They're a both, secret to everybody. They're a secret. To, uh, it, it, literally, an intersection called a secret to everyone. <laughs> um, uh, but we have both a work channel where people can ask work questions and share things. Although, you know, we do ask, don't assume everyone on, on the project has the same NDA, so you can't talk about the specifics of the project you're working on, but you can ask general offer the next questions um and then we have a water cooler where people post like pictures of their gundam models or talk about their dogs i mean so we just hang out and have fun too um and and something that i know in the past year a big change from 2018 is that we've been trying harder to build our community of freelancers more and i've seen a lot of positive benefits of that of just giving people space to to vent and be frustrated um by you know the later twitter discourse or whatever can sometimes be very helpful and just realize oh we're all in this together and we all have similar Mm -hmm. concerns and values to try to make the the best games we can uh so um we look forward to seeing more people who want to to try their hand at following uh becoming freelancers um established freelancers we'd love to hear more from you and you know, try to find your work. There's only so much work to go around, but, you know, if we can make it work, we'd love to have that work out for you. Um, I know Dixie is very happy with the, the amount of editors she's been getting in lately, <laughs> making things a lot easier for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so if folks uh, had questions for uh, you about uh, freelancing, freelance bath, freelancing in general, uh, Dixie, where would they find you online? You can find me everywhere online at Dixie Cyanide. If it's pretty much all social media, you can find me hanging around on the Onyx Path Discord. Uh, I don't change my nickname in there usually, so I'm t- I'm generally just Dixie Cochran or Dixie Cyanide. Pretty easy to find. And Matthew? They can find me on MatthewDawkins.com. They can tweet me at DawkinsMP, and they can also find me on the Onyx Path Discord as Matthew Dawkins. You can find me at uh, pugsteady.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at pugsteady. Um, I'm also on many discords as Eddie Fate. Uh, you can find out more about Realms of Pugmire at realmsofpugmire.com. You can find all of us at theonyxpath.com along with all of our properties. Um, check out the Monday Meeting blog, something we haven't talked about a lot lately, but um, if you want to know where your favorite project's at um, or if you have questions about it, the Monday Meeting blog that Rich puts out every week, although it's occasionally Dixie, um, that's the best place to do because every week we tell you the status of the company as much as we can talk about it. So um, if you're looking for more newsy type stuff, uh, that's definitely a great resource to use. Uh, so 
there's all that, and uh, good luck on your freelance career. And as always, many worlds, one basket. Thank you.